Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast, where we look ahead to some of the events that are going to be moving markets over the coming days. I'm Robert Miller. That means oil and what OPEC ministers might decide at their meeting in Vienna delivering a verdict on Philip Hammond's first and last autumn statement, and we'll be checking out the state of the high street. I'm joined by Robin Pagnamenta, the deputy business editor of The Times, Patrick Hosking, our financial editor and columnist, and Deirdre Hipwell, The Times retail editor. Welcome to you all. Uh, Robin, I'm going to start with you. The OPEC Oil Producers Organisation is going to hold its formal meeting in Vienna shortly, and you're going to be there. But before we look ahead, here's a clip of the last time we heard from OPEC, officially at least. This is what Dr. Mohammed bin Salah al-Sada, president of that 170th meeting. It was an extraordinary one in Algiers in September. This is what he said. And we came up with a way forward that is to consider targeting 32.5 to 33 million barrel per day target. And we agreed on having a high level technical committee of all OPEC members to study the mechanism of sharing the production at individual countries' level. Robin, obviously a lot has been happening since then that you've been writing about. Just set the scene ahead of us, ahead of the meeting for us. Well, this is potentially a a very significant meeting. Uh, What we were just listening to there was from the September meeting in Algiers where we had this really rather unexpected announcement that uh, OPEC was going to cut production for the first time in many years in an effort to to, to push up prices. But they omitted some, some, you know, very important details, which was how this cut to 32.5 to 33 million barrels a day is going to actually be shared out between OPEC's 14 member states. So since uh, that meeting, we've had a lot of sort of volatility in the oil price as, you know, confidence uh, in in a deal, you know, in, in whether OPEC can actually reach a deal has sort of ebbed and flowed. And we still don't know for sure. But there are quite sort of strong signs that they may be able to reach a deal next week. The real um, tension within this meeting will be between Saudi Arabia, the kingpin producer and you know OPEC's sort of lead member, uh, and Iran and Iraq, uh, both of which believe that they should be exempt 
from uh, any cut for, for different reasons. Iran, because uh, sanctions linked to their nuclear program were only lifted earlier this year and they still want to raise production to levels that they were at before they were originally imposed. And in Iraq, the country is at war and they feel that they should be exempt because they need to maximise all of the revenue that they can gain from oil production. In you know, on the other side are the Saudis, who traditionally have borne the you know have borne the brunt of these cuts. They've always been the the the, the member that has to sort of carry the the others, and you know they're they're pushing the other way. They feel that all members should uh, should participate in a cut, and Saudi will obviously uh, be the sort of lead member that will cut the most. But uh, you know, so th- this is the tension that. Exists. And meanwhile, we have another factor this time, which is that although Russia is not a member of OPEC, uh, Russia has been pushing hard for um, a, a production freeze or a production cut and is sort of on the sidelines of this uh, of this meeting and, and has said that it will cooperate in, in some way, um, either by freezing production or uh, conceivably even cutting production. So there's quite a lot of... Um, confidence that they will reach a deal but you never know with these meetings and the last meeting which uh, you know a year ago in Vienna which was a meeting I was at you know it was a fiasco and there was a lot of disagreement and they didn't agree on anything at all and people stormed out and that was the end of that I mean the chances of that happening I'd say are, are slimmer this time uh, but we'll have to see. Yeah, I th- I, there is a, quite a lot of market pressure on them to come up with some kind of, some kind of deal. If only because if they don't, I suspect the uh, oil price might might slide. But you know, cartels are very different, difficult to make work, even when they dominate the uh, the industry. And, and OPEC no longer dominates in the way it now does, even with uh, Russian production. I think they're less than fifty percent of of world output, and uh, the temptation to cheat. Even when you, uh, even um, even when your friends is is colossal. Uh, in this case, when you hate everyone, uh, there's so much uh, hatred between and distrust between different OPEC members. There is a lot of uh, loss of temptation to, to cheat, even if you ag- agree at the start to, to make these production cuts. I'm just interested to know, I guess, whatever outcome happens next week, what impact that has for the average person, because obviously it'll feed through to. I guess petrol prices, um, general consumers. So I'm just interested, what would be a good outcome from next week for consumers? Um, well, I guess for, for consumers in Britain, clearly, you know, um, any deal that they manage to reach that's effective is going to push up uh, prices at the pump. So it will be bad news for consumers. Um, although there are obviously other factors, um, you know, the, the, the fall in the pound has actually been the, the biggest influence on UK sort of uh, pump prices in, in recent weeks. But I mean, you know, there are other there are other factors at play here i mean you know uh for the oil industry and for you know if you if you're a if you have a pension fund or you uh, you know then then um, bp and shell etc are big are going to be a big component of that so you know um but certainly for consumers yeah i mean a, a deal would would be bad news what about the american factor i was reading somewhere recently that they just don't take part in OPEC or non-OPEC meetings at all. They carry on. And uh, so far, President-elect Trump seems to have said, carry on fracking only with a greater degree. In fact, you've written in The Times in, in a column about this. So is that going to be a, a big factor this time? Well, I don't think it's not a factor that will directly influence the outcome of this meeting. But uh, certainly there is this uh, compelling argument that the oil market is, you know, has fundamentally changed um, over the past, you know, five, ten years because of the US 
fracking boom. Unlike conventional oil production, shale oil and fracking is a sort of more of an industrial process that can be kind of switched on on and off relatively inexpensively. So, uh, you know, it may be that if they if OPEC does get a deal uh, and push up prices, that will simply, you know, in turn lead to a whole raft of uh, shale production coming back on in the US which will then you know act to depress prices as it as it comes onto the market so there are you know there are some who believe that the oil market has fundamentally changed and that OPEC just simply doesn't wield the power that it did you know uh, 20 30 years ago and the one thing i would say is that whatever OPEC agrees it's 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 very difficult even then to predict where oil prices are going i remember 20 only 20 years ago uh, the oil price duck below $10 a barrel, it was impossible to find anybody who would, was prepared to say it would ever go anywhere higher in the next five years or something. As we know, it actually shot up by 15 times to $150. So uh, uh, I, I do think it's very difficult to say where the oil price is going, even if you knew what OPEC was thinking about doing. What we'll have to see is, um, as, as Patrick's said, you know, there's a difference between getting a getting an agreement and then actually people sticking to that agreement and observing it because there's no kind of OPEC police force that goes around uh, checking that people aren't exceeding their production quotas. It's very difficult to actually monitor it. And quite often what happens is they come up with a deal, it lasts for a few weeks and then it breaks you know, it breaks apart. And obviously, you know, if, if different member states sort of learn that their, their rivals are actually overproducing, then they just start doing exactly the same thing themselves. The other thing is that there's a lot of gamesmanship in, in these meetings. And a lot of, you know, everyone is talking their own book and uh, and trying to advance their own interests. Uh, and, you st- and, you know, for example, the Russians are talking about um, participating or collaborating or freezing or potentially cutting production. There's a seasonal... The Russian oil production varies according to, you know, the time of year. So during the winter, Russian production always falls. So they may be sort of dressing up a... a, a you know, a regular, you know, winter fall in production as a, as some sort of concession to OPEC. And there's a similar trend with Saudi oil production, which tends to rise in the summer and fall in fall in the autumn because domestic demand for air conditioning is very high in Saudi Arabia in the summer, so they need to produce more uh, oil. So there's all sorts of moving parts to this. It's quite a compli- complex thing to, um, to determine. We'll just have to wait and see. All right, well, you'll be there. And don't forget, you can uh, follow... Uh Robin's tweets and a copy in the paper and online, of course, will keep you up to date with all that's happening there. Sounds like a good setting for a novel, really. Mystery, intrigue, skullduggery and secret meetings. I love it. Now, it would be remiss at least not to check in on the autumn statement. Patrick, you were watching this. Uh, Here's a clip of Philip Hammond describing the economic realities post-Brexit, well, as he sees them anyway. But it's a decision that also makes more urgent than ever the need to tackle our economy's long-term weaknesses, like the productivity gap, the housing challenge and the damaging imbalance in economic growth and prosperity across our country. Mr Speaker, we resolve today to confront those challenges head-on, to prepare our country to seize the opportunities ahead and, in doing so, to build an economy that works for everyone. An economy where every corner of this United Kingdom is part of our national success. 
reassuring? Uh, I think it was a bit reassuring, really, yes. Um, I mean, it's very dull to give sermons on productivity, but that's the only thing that's really going to uh, to improve uh, prosperity in this country in the, in the long term. There was there were no silly rabbits out of hats, which a lot of people will think is a good idea because they so often go wrong. And I, I think there was some a lot of realism in some of the, the points he was making. I mean, he was, uh, he was referring to the, the triple lock and saying that, might have to go after at the end of this parliament that's hugely significant because uh, the state pension is so expensive and similarly he was suggesting that uh, pension tax relief might go now these are they are they are quite dull subjects but boy do they uh, do they cost a lot of money and if he's prepared to grapple with some of those those kinds of issues that's uh, that's quite encouraging for the for the public finances, I think. Might have been no rabbits up the hat, but Patrick, don't you think there was a bit of a harebrained scheme with all the chat about Wentworth House? I think it was called Wentworth House. Oh, this is the re- redevelopment, <laughs> housing redevelopment. Yes, yeah, I mean, that was certainly the weirdest moment of, of yeah, the autumn I mean, statement. And he spent a lot of time on it too, I thought. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, a spreadsheet Phil tried to show his human side, I think, but yeah. I'm not sure it was uh, uh, particularly successful. Yeah. But was the bottom line at the end of the day we are going to be worse off, whether we like it or not. I mean, he started off that speech, I have to say, saying we were the strongest country in the G7. By the time he'd laid out those, I was... Well, 24 hours later, the Institute for Fiscal Studies was saying that we're going to be worse off in 2021 than we, the, than we, are, we were in 2008. So that's uh, 13 years of living standards actually deteriorating, which is quite a, a shocking statistic. I think there was, uh, I, I was interested in what happened to the, in the guilt market immediately afterwards, which is what really determines how much we're, we're able to borrow as a country. And although uh, prices fell a bit, guilt yields were up 12 basis points. That's not a huge amount. The government can still borrow at 1.48% for 10 years, which is quite staggering when you think about it. So it sounds like the bond markets anyway are prepared to tolerate Britain borrowing a bit more to get us through this difficult Brexit. It's often referred to as sort of semi-Keynesian policies. Would you say so? You know, in other words, almost dig your way out. I mean, he jokingly said, dig your way out of trouble. Is that what we're going to be doing? Well, there's a tiny shift from uh, towards a more uh, or less contractionary fiscal policy. Yes, definitely. What was it? 23 billion for this infrastructure fund. But that is not a huge amount in terms of the British economy. And and it probably shouldn't be simply because we don't have the capacity suddenly to embark on very, very expensive infrastructure projects. We don't have the skills. We don't have the skills or the uh, the capacity to do so. So suddenly, to press the button on enormous projects might not be a, a terribly good idea. But it's a, it's a move in that direction. And the other thing that, of course, it does it it eases the pressure on the Bank of England and makes it more possible for them to uh, go to back towards a more normal monetary policy, i.e., raising interest rates. But isn't there sometimes an argument that these big infrastructure uh, projects don't always deliver? I mean, obviously they're big and and they increase productivity, but that they don't always deliver as as much benefit um, as people think. So maybe that's the idea around smaller localised projects. I mean, I think that was the whole concept around the house building, like linking it to local uh, councils and local infrastructure and using infrastructure investment to help unlock sites for house building and you know, having spent years covering the property market, that is something that property developers have been asking for for years because it can be really difficult to bring on a big development site of five to 10,000 homes if you don't have the roads, the schools, the broadband infrastructure. So I thought that was quite an interesting 
policy may be smaller but much more projects rather than trying to get another Crossrail or another Olympics-style contract. Yeah, no, I agree. A small is small is beautiful. There's much you get more bang for your buck with with small projects, and I think there are there are more shovel ready shovel ready projects. I think the CBI calls them, uh, uh, you know, small road building project projects in the in the provinces which are ready to go. Absolutely. The one thing I do hope though is what we saw after the recession, particularly in the property industry, was that you had a whole swathe of smaller, medium-sized builders that just went out, that they, they just crashed out of the market because they couldn't get debt, they couldn't build. So we lost a whole load of house building capacity. So what you had was the really big guys, the Taylor Wimpies, the Barclay Homes, continuing to build, but we lost a lot of developers, including developers who might just build little infill schemes of five to ten homes in a small Hertfordshire uh, location. So what I'm hoping is that in addition to all of this um, money that's going towards local councils and infrastructure spending that we also get the ability um, maybe greater finance to uh, smaller businesses to also start you know contributing to this great infrastructure spending we're all about to embark on all right we'll leave it there and uh, sit tight we're going to take a short break and when we return well we're going to be looking at the topical retail sector if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain. 2016 has been branded the year of the SME. This is your year, time for your business to stand out. Are you ready? Vodafone's Ready Business Britain, in association with The Times and Sunday Times, has all the advice, insight and analysis your business needs to make this your year. Get ready. Visit readybusinessbritain.co.uk. Welcome back. Well, I suppose even I have to give in now. The run-up to Christmas well and truly has begun. So, just to get you in the mood and in the interests of even-handedness, we played Marks and Spencer's last time. Here's the Sainsbury's offering. Ooh. 
Another year over, where do they go to? It's a mystery. Now it's December, so much to remember before Christmas Eve. I'm already late and my train is delayed. Disruption on the line. <laughs> Deirdre, I know you love them, but seriously, what is the outlook for retailers? And what I suppose is their busiest time of year, isn't it? It is the busiest time of year, and, and quite frankly, for retail reporters, this is sometimes the most irritating time of year because your inbox is deluged with PR releases on Christmas ads, Black Friday, what deals are on. Um, so it is a very important time, and, and clearly retailers are in PR overdrive trying to promote what products they're going to be selling. Um, obviously, Black Friday, is is obviously upon us at the moment um, and it's possibly one of the worst imports from America other than, well, I don't know if we can call him an import, but Donald Trump, but it is an American uh, tradition that has come over here and love it or hate it, it's here to stay and retailers have to adapt to it and there's huge huge pressure on their retail operations but also potentially an opportunity to get a big boost in sales before Christmas. The, the problem for many retailers is it's still unclear if the spike in sales in Black Friday, is that just pulling forward some of this, the spending they would have got closer to Christmas? Or is this a genuine increase in sales where people are looking to, to get good deals on electronic items and then will continue to spend in the run-up to Christmas? But yeah, it's a pretty, pretty vital time. And as is always the case, we'll find out in January which retailers got it right and which didn't because they all start reporting on how the Christmas trading went. But for many, it'll just depend on the product range and just how much Britons are wanting to spend this year on Christmas. And I think people are going to be you know, pulling in their belts a bit because I think some of this talk about the rows between suppliers and and retailers are starting to filter through to the general consciousness and I think people are starting to realise that prices are going to go up so maybe people might want to save a bit this Christmas. Yeah, it could go the other way, of course, and I think prices are rising next year, which is what we keep saying because it takes some time for the, the sterling thing to feed through. So so buy now while, while, while prices are cheap. I think uh, the most important... Uh, uh, factor which determines whether people spend or not is how f- secure they feel in their jobs and at the moment they're feeling relatively job secure and uh, the employment statistics are, are pretty amazing at the moment. Robin, looking at business overall, I mean this topic of consumer confidence we talked about before and retail spending, do you feel that, yeah, Patrick alluded to job job security there, do you feel businesses are confident that they can keep their workforces together, even through some more difficult times? I'm not sure that they're particularly confident, but I, th- I, th- I suppose they're more confident than we might have expected. I mean, you know, we, uh, the, we were all led to believe uh, in the run-up to uh, June the 23rd that, you know, uh, the Armageddon would be upon us if, uh, if we voted to leave the EU. But, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, I suppose it has been a surprise that business confidence has held up as well as it, as well as it had. I mean, the real test, I, I'm sure, will, will come next year when things come into sharper focus, we're still in this sort of rather phony war situation. So, I mean, we shall see. I mean, what I, I, one of the things I was wondering was whether we've seen some quite um, aggressive, what I would term price gouging uh, from some some big uh, companies, you know, with the, the whole Marmite, Marmite gate row. And we've seen, we saw these very sharp increases from Apple, uh, you know, this is all sort of, um, and, and I wonder if we might see more of that in the run up to Christmas and sort of some companies being a bit opportunistic and taking advantage of the situation. Absolutely. All the retailers you speak to at the moment are saying that they're having some quite tough discussions with their suppliers. What was interesting about the Unilever row was 
allegedly what caused a lot of the upset with Tesco and, and probably the other big grocers was that Unilever was asking for a blanket increase across all of its product range, which the retailers were saying that's just not acceptable because there'll be some products where, you know, the majority of the raw materials might be sourced in the UK and that you can't just apply a blanket increase. And also, Mike Coop at Sainsbury's was recently arguing, saying he looks at his profit margins versus the supplier profit margins, and, and he's saying the first thing he's going to be asking them if they come asking for price increases will look at your own cost base and look at other ways of mitigating currency issues than just trying to you know bung a big increase in price on, on the retailers. Yeah, that was interesting. It was good to see the, the supermarkets playing hardball against... Um against Unilever, but I do think there's no way you can completely um, ignore a, you know, a 20% fall in the, in the exchange rate. That will filter through. I was just talking to um, uh, talking of price increases coming through. Hot off the press, my latest factoid, um, the chief executive of Domino's Pizza told me today that the price of cheese that he buys, and presumably he buys an awful lot of cheese, um, has gone up 30% since April. No, I mean, I do think, you know, the the retailers are obviously uh, trying to maximise their whole we're a consumer champion and we're going to, like, you know, stand up to these filthy, greedy suppliers. But I think... You know, when it when they get down to, it, I think the retailers are, um, to a certain extent, aware that the suppliers are suddenly facing a big cost increase. But I think what the point they're making is obviously, if you're importing oranges from Spain, that will have a cost increase. But it has to be a discussion, and that there's other ways of managing these sorts of price um, issues other than just putting up the price increases. You know, you can put put money towards promoting a product or the retailer might agree to take more of a product for a lower price. So I think there's different ways of of handling this. But I do think retailers will have to um, look at it very closely. AO, for example, this week said that for their Black Friday deals, they had agreed the products that they would be putting in Black Friday months ago before Brexit with the suppliers. Obviously, that hasn't worked out that well for the suppliers who are mostly based in Europe. And they've obviously tried to pass on those price increases. And AO just said flatly, no, we agreed these prices. It's your problem, not ours. So I think it could get a a bit hairy for some relationships. Absolutely. I mean, I suppose the difference is that uh, a company like Tesco has the the sort of muscle and the, you know, the the firepower to actually stand up to a a giant company like Unilever. But a lot of retailers in the UK uh, don't have anything like that kind of clout and will just simply have to accept what what they're offered. That is true. And also Dave Lewis, I guess, has a certain advantage in that he worked at Unilever for years. So he probably knows quite well how their business works and what their margins are like. But uh, agreed, if you're a Tesco with whatever it is, 27, 28% of the grocery market, you're a very important customer to many suppliers because just the, the channels to get their products out. But, you know, if you're a small biscuit manufacturer in Sterling, it might be a lot harder to negotiate price increases. All right, well, thank you all very much. That's a nice note to end on. Uh, but remember, you can keep up to date with all the news. We mentioned that uh, Robin's going to be in Vienna watching the OPEC conference. Uh, read the analysis online on your phone or on your tablet. Uh, and don't forget, of course, the paper. If you are a subscriber, you can sign up to our daily morning and lunchtime business emails. And if you'd like to become a subscriber, just go to thetimes.co.uk and you'll find a special £1 offer there. If you want to hear us weekly, subscribe through iTunes. Please do feel free to post your comments we'd love to hear from you my thanks to Deirdre Hipwell Robin Bagnamenta and Patrick Hosking they're on Twitter so please do follow them we'll be back next week thanks for listening The Times Business Podcast is sponsored by Vodafone's Ready Business Britain Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.